Welcome to the world of critical care. Today's episode is going to focus on Coumadin or Warfarin, the probably the most common oral anticoagulant seen in critical care currently. Granted, there are definitely some newer oral anticoagulants that are starting to take over, but especially in our elderly population, a lot of people who've been on this medication for a long time, it remains incredibly common. It's rather inexpensive, easily reversed. We have a great wide body of research on it, so we understand the medication well. And so because of that, we continue to see it used for chronic anticoagulation, especially out of the hospital setting. Now, I think Coumadin is a bit of a unique medication, I think primarily because of its origin story. It really has an interesting beginning. In the early 1920s, up in the northern United States, southern Canada, they started to have cows dying from hemorrhage. And they couldn't figure out what on earth was going on. And so some scientists started really looking into it. And what they found is, is that they, they realized that it had to do with what the cows were eating. And so they found out that the cows were eating this spoiled sweet clover. And this old kind of firm, this sweet clover would almost start fermenting. So they were actually able to study it and isolate something called bis-hydroxycumarin. And they found that this had a very specific effect on the clotting cascade. And this led to the anticoagulation effect and hence what we call the Coumadins or the Coumarin-type medications. Now, this medication initially was developed and released to the market actually sort of an anti-rodent medication. So when they talk about it being a rat poison, that's really what it was initially. It wasn't until the 1950s that it was released for medical purposes in humans. And this came out as warfarin. Now, warfarin actually was from the Wisconsin Alumni Research Foundation. So that's the W-A-R-F, and then the Aaron ending related to the Coumarin-type drug class. So we had warfarin released. And in fact, I think it was Eisenhower who had his first very public heart attack as president and famously was treated with warfarin afterwards. So warfarin is primarily an oral medication. We see it, uh, it's typically a sodium salt form. It's unique in that once we uh, ingest it, it has a pretty long half-life, about 36 hours. It's heavily, heavily protein-bound. And so what that means is it's going to bind to albumin as it's in our bloodstream. We see it primarily hepatically cleared. And so, again, when we have liver impairment, we start to think about, okay, what do we need to adjust our dosing, etc.? Now, one thing about this, and this is a touch of the organic chem side, but I do think it's interesting. This is a racemic mixture. Now, if you've ever had organic chemistry or you've read a little bit about this, if we have a racemic mixture, it means we have a 50-50 blend of what are called two enantiomers. And enantiomers, essentially, we have a chemical compound. What we can actually have is a mirror image of the way it looks. So we might have one side of the mirror, but then we have the other side of the mirror. And these can have potentially different effects. And so interestingly, we have our R and S enantiomers. These are our two mirror sides. 
What's interesting with Coumadin is that the R enantiomer is really one-fourth as strong as the S enantiomer. The S enantiomer is much stronger, four times stronger. The reason I bring that up is because they do have some specific, unique interactions with different medications. And so because of that, when we talk about our concerns for Coumadin, this difference between the enantiomers is actually why we can have some really unique challenges with certain types of medications that we're given and how they interact with Coumadin. So how does Coumadin work? Now, we all, most people know we're not supposed to eat vitamin K, right? Because that can reverse Coumadin. So what's really going on here? Now, Vitamin K is critical in multiple of the reactions in the clotting cascade. And specifically, what Coumadin is doing is it's blocking a gamma carboxylation of glutamate residues in prothrombin in factor 7, 9, and 10. But it's also doing that as well in the endogenous proteins C and S. Now, what on earth does that mean? Well, to simplify it, what's really occurring here is we can think about this with our, with one of our reactions with prothrombin. So prothrombin, we have what's called a descarboxyl carboxy uh, prothrombin, and it actually ends up with carboxylase moving into prothrombin. Now, in this reaction, moving the other direction, we actually have an oxidation reaction where we have the what we call vitamin K as we think moving from an oxid from an active state into an inactive state now when vitamin K is in its inactive state it needs to then be activated to be useful in these reactions and to activate it it goes through a reduction reaction when we give these coumarin or coumadin specific medications, they are preventing vitamin K from moving back into its activated form. So it's preventing that reduction reaction from occurring that we need. Now, because of that, it has a pretty potent effect on a wide range of different clotting factors because this is used in multiple different chemical reactions in the clotting cascade. And remember the clotting cascade, there's a wide range of sequential reactions, but also different interrelated reactions that may not be directly sequential. And so in this specific situation, we are going to be looking at things like protein C and S, which I didn't spend a lot of time talking about, but they're important in in our clotting cascade when we start thinking about coagulation as a whole. But we also see the effects on factor 7, 9, 10, and 2, which is prothrombin. What's important to remember, though, with Coumadin, and like I said, it's a 36-hour half-life, so it's a pretty long half-life. But interestingly, because of that, it actually has varied effects on different clotting factors. So, for example, if we think about the half-life on factor 7, it's approximately six hours when we administer Coumadin. On factor nine, it's 24-hour half-life. On factor 10, it's 40 hours. And on factor two, it actually has a 60-hour half-life. Now, that's why it's really important with Coumadin to remember, one, it takes us a while to see the immediate effects of the medication. 
But additionally, if we need instantaneous anticoagulation, we typically use a bridging method or what we might do is initiate something like IV heparin, subcutaneous heparin, or low molecular weight heparin. And then we start Coumadin as well so that the Coumadin will eventually take effect, but it can take us up to a week to become therapeutic. And so that's why often we start with a different anticoagulant and then we quote-unquote bridge our patient to a therapeutic dosing of Coumadin. Now, because of the effect it has specifically on the clotting cascade, we can see here how we would probably use a PT, so that prothrombin time, and that's exactly what we use for Coumadin. We typically are going to look at our PT, but specifically our INR. Remember, that's our normalized ratio. So we're taking our patient's PT, but we're then going to be able to divide that by a normalization PT. Because remember, every equipment is a little bit different. Labs run these labs a little bit differently. And so they're going to look at a large sample pool with that specific testing methodology and equipment and then compare that PT to our patient's PT to get our INR so that the goal there is that we have a standardized value for anticoagulation that we can use across populations and we can in terms of different labs and different machines, etc. With Coumadin, what we're typically doing is we're trying to anticoagulate our patient. Typically, you're looking at something roughly of a 25% reduction in normal clotting capability when we look at a PT. So what that means is we're going to be increasing the amount of time it takes to form that clot. Now, we are normally looking for an INR of approximately 2 to 3, so slightly elevated from normal. It does depend what our specific case is. So, for example, you have a patient that we're doing DVT prophylaxis. We're looking usually 2 to 3. You have an artificial heart valve. There might be some indications where we push that a little bit higher. So we might be looking for an INR of 2.5 to 3.5. Again, it's important to remember that because every patient population is going to be a little bit different. An LVAD patient may end up being anticoagulated a little bit different than your chronic AFib patient would be at home. And so it's always important to remember... In general, why are we anticoagulating? And that can sometimes adjust our INR ranges. So always, when you think about the medication, ask yourself, what is our INR range? Because it can change from patient to patient. Now, Coumadin typically takes about a week to become therapeutic. And so often you're going to start with about 5 to 10 milligrams a day and progress that. Usually maintenance dosings are around 5 to 7 milligrams. It can depend to what kind of anticoagulant is already on board in terms of how that initial, um, the initiation of the medication is done. I've seen it where we have IV heparin patients or sub-Q heparin patients, and we start bridging the patient. And sometimes they start as low as like two and a half milligrams for a first dose. They're very cautious. And then it might move to five milligrams, et cetera. But it takes several days for us to start seeing a change in the INR when we initiate heparin or when we initiate Coumadin. So because of that, it's really important to remember, you know, you, you start it next day, you check your INR and it's not high and you kind of think, Oh, wait, 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 like why isn't it up yet? It takes some, a fairly significant amount of time. A lot of times though, it takes about a week for us to move to a therapeutic state. Now, historically, a lot of people have really struggled 
staying therapeutic on Coumadin. You tend to see a lot of people super therapeutic or sub-therapeutic on Coumadin. It seems to be a bit of a challenge. There's a lot of new at-home testing for people to help try to test more frequently to stay in range, but it can be really challenging. One of the issues just has to do with not only the dietary restraints, of course, if we introduce vitamin K into our diet, especially if we have people who really eat a lot of leafy greens, that can present a real challenge to maintaining that proper Coumadin dosing. But also it does interact with a lot of different medications. And so we can kind of think of that interaction in a few ways, but one of them is kind of pharmacokinetic versus pharmacodynamic interactions. And so another way of saying this essentially is when we think about something such as like a pharmacokinetic mechanism for drug interaction with warfarin, what we're looking at things are mainly like cytochrome P450 enzymes. So this is our enzyme in the liver that's responsible for metabolizing a lot of different medications. Well, if we have another medication that interacts with that, it can then change the effectiveness of Coumadin. But we can also be looking at different medications that possibly reduce plasma protein binding. Remember, we talked about how this is heavily protein-bound, specifically bound to albumin. If we give a medication that affects that, that can change our effective dosing. And remember what I said, there's those two different enantiomers. If we give something that affects the protein binding worse on that R versus S enantiomer, remember, it's that S that's really, really strong. There's a couple medications that we sometimes give. It changes the binding of that S enantiomer, and guess what? It now we become supra, supra therapeutic on our Coumadin because it's suddenly much more active in our system. And so those are those things we need to think about. So when we, we talk about that pharmacokinetic effect, well, there's quite a few medications that can increase our PT time. In other words, increasing our INR. We're more anticoagulated than we want. There's medications like amiodarone does that, which can be really concerning because a lot of times we give amiodarone in AFib patients who we also may be trying to anticoagulate. We give amiodarone a lot of times to people who've had heart valve surgeries to decrease the prevalence of AFib. We're looking at a medication like disulfiram, fluconazole. We have multiple other different medications that are similar to those that we use. And so it's important to remember those things. That's why pharmacists are so important in critical care to help keep these things in mind. Now, we also have that pharmacodynamic effect. And that's a little bit different. So that's more where we start thinking about a synergistic effect. So if we're giving aspirin, well, that can further change our, coagul our coagulability. And so, again, we can be further anticoagulated. We could look at cephalosporins have a similar effect. And then, of course, any kind of current anticoagulants we're on, heparin, argatroban, we're looking at like a pixaban, you know, any of those types of medications, again, they can potentiate that effect. Now, many times we're doing that intentionally because of the bridge process we're doing, but those are important things to remember. Now, there's a few things we can do, though, that could decrease the effectiveness of our Coumadin. Now, we already talked about one of them, which was obviously the introduction of exogenous vitamin K. So we eat it in our diet. That can be really a challenge. 
But there's also things such as rifampin or rifaximin, a really common antibiotic used in our patients with hepatic failure. We see it with different like gut flora disorders. This may be used. And again, it's something to remember. Barbiturates are another one. Again, not super common in critical care, but something I have used back when I was in our neuro ICU. You see barbiturates used. And so that's something, again, to keep in mind. Um, We're also going to look at things like diuretics. Diuretics, again, can decrease our effectiveness of Coumadin. And finally, there are certain hereditary disorders, and we can think about hypothyroidism decreasing our effectiveness of Coumadin. I bring all these things up not to say, hey, you need to go memorize them and we're going to keep them in our head. The reason I mention them, I think, is because it's worthwhile keeping in our mind the fact that Coumadin does have some specific different interactions with medications that can change how effective it is. And I think that really speaks to the broad story of Coumadin. We know a lot about it. We've been using it since the 1950s. It's easily reversed. We're going to talk about it in a second. But it does have challenges. And that's why, in many ways, there's a lot of new medications moving forward, kind of taking its place. But it's still so commonly used, we really have to talk about it. Now let's talk about reversal. This is really one of the big advantages of Coumadin is how easily reversed it is. We typically reverse in a few situations. First and foremost, we have a significantly elevated INR and we're in a situation where we have active hemorrhage. Just an elevated INR is not a reason for reversal. Often we might even have an INR up around eight, nine, or 10. Typically in those situations, we're still going to skip a dose, maybe a second dose, monitor the INR, make sure it comes back down. And then what we'll do is we'll typically resume a daily dosing at a new lower dose and continue to watch our INR. When we come into a situation though where we might have an active head bleed, we have a situation where we have moderate to severe hemorrhage. We come in on Coumadin, we need emergency surgery. These are situations where we say, okay, we do need to do some sort of reversal. And so we have quite a few different medications at our disposal. First and foremost is vitamin K. So we could administer IV or PO vitamin K. Additionally, we could do fresh frozen plasma. Remember, this is where all of our clotting factors are. And so we can simply introduce a significant quantity of clotting factors. Remember, with FFP, though, it's a little bit less specific. We can also do prothrombin complex concentrates. So those are called PCC. Now, there's different types of PCC. There's actually a four-factor concentrate specifically containing factors 2, 7, 9, and 10. This is often called K-Centra. This is also like a four-factor PCC. This is another medication that we can give very specifically that helps with that reversal. And so we have quite a few different ways we can do this. Um, When we have like incredibly severe bleeding and we need to instantaneously reverse this, the the general go-to is is we're going to go ahead and give the uh, prothrombin complex. Or there's also this recombinant factor 7A coupled with vitamin K, and that tends to be our severe hemorrhage in the presence of Coumadin reversal. And so these are some of the ways we can do it. 
again, it can kind of depend on the ICU physician or if you're in an emergency department. This is very common in emergency departments. It kind of depends on their interaction with the pharmacist and, and, and the facility you're at and how they want to do the reversal specifically. I personally have seen most of these medications used or in some combination over the years. There's nothing too unique about any of these medications. We've talked about most of them, how we administer them in previous episodes. But this is one of the nice factors of Coumadin is how easily reversed it is. So thanks for listening today. I know it was a full episode, but it's such a common medication. I think it's really important to really dig into a little bit because you're going to see patients in the ICU on Coumadin regularly. The next episode, we're going to talk about some of the other oral anticoagulants out there, and we're going to specifically really focus on Apixaban on the next episode.